at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello and welcome to episode 178 of the Bronx Beat Podcast presented by BP Bronx. I am EJ Fagan having a wonderful day. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Semendinger. Hello, EJ. And Scott Moss. Hey, you know, I don't know if I've ever in my life been as excited as you sound, so glad for whatever happened today. Yeah, I'm doing 100% today. Uh, so so Mariana Rivera and Mike Messina are Hall of Famers. Um, I... I don't even know what to think. Uh, Paul, what was your reaction when you saw saw the vote? Oh, well, uh, watching it with my son, Ethan, and we were excited that Messina got in. We were watching uh, Jeff Idelson of the Hall of Fame, and when he said knuckle curve, we jumped up and we were like, yes! But the bigger news, of course, uh, which made us even more excited, was the fact that Mariano uh, was elected with 100% of the vote. I just love that. It's well-deserved. He's the greatest of all time as, as far as the relief pitchers. And it's just great that he got 100% of the vote. I'm glad nobody decided to be you know stupid and say he didn't make it or he doesn't deserve and nobody deserves to be 100% or any of that nonsense. So when we heard that, we jumped up, high fives, hugs, and uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of uh, jubilation in the Semendinger household. Scott, I mean, Jason Stark had an interesting comment on MLB Network shortly after the vote. He said that all four guys that were elected were elected without the big, obvious, like traditional statistics that may have held back players in previous you know, on previous ballots, right? No three thousand hits, none, none of that kind of stuff. But they were all clearly Hall of Famers by by modern statistics. Is this a, a new era? No. <laughs> <laughs> you well, know, first of all, I'm excited about the results, both because Messina and Rivera were favorites of mine. I mean. If you're listening to this, probably at least Rivera was a favorite of yours, but I always had a weak spot for Messina too. But, you know, when you look at it, Messina and Edgar clearly deserved it, but they got in in years 6 and 10 after that annoyingly glacial climb that basically shows sports writers to be divas and drama queens where they have to hem and haw for 10 damn years before deciding Edgar Martinez deserves it. Rivera, that's great that he got in. I'm with Paul. I'm glad that it broke the sea on the 100 so that when Jeter's up next year, or non-Yankees, just obvious people in the future, we're not going to have a discussion about whether anyone should ever get 100, whatever. And Halliday got in, you know, it reminds me of Kirby Puckett getting in. I would have voted for Halliday, but to get 85 in your first year when you're a good, not super obvious candidate, I think it was partly a tragedy vote. And I hate to say that, but I think that's the reality of it, and that normally, look, there are pitchers with about 200 wins who you need to look at non-traditional stats or go off something other than zillion strikeouts, 300 wins. Halliday, you know, I'm really pleased he got in this quickly, but I don't think it shows enlightenment as much as, you know, there's sympathy and it's well-deserved. I feel, you know, terrible when it all happened when he passed away. But, you know, I suspect it's kind of like Kirby Puckett getting in on the first ballot. So I'm pleased it broke the backlog. I'm pleased we broke the seal in 100. All four are guys I'm excited got in. Uh, but I don't think there's any evidence of greater enlightenment uh, this year. 
So, Scott, and before we move on to talk about Messina Rivera more specifically, we played a little game a few months ago where we tried to predict the Hall of Fame vote. You have the results of those games. So who won and uh, what player was kind of most important in deciding that result? Yeah, good questions both. So uh, Derek, EJ, and I all guessed the percentage for the top 50, uh, 20 or so candidates. And I just calculated a points total, which is basically Edgar got 85. So when I guessed 77... I have eight points, but points are not good here. Points are how much you miss by. So I added up how much we missed every candidate by. And the answer is I came in third, a distant third, <laughs> with 175 points. That means I missed our 20 candidates by an average of eight. Um, EJ was second with 153. So with 20 candidates, 21, you missed by an average of seven and a half. Derek wins with 130 points, 132. He was within six and a half on average. Really, 99% of the variation, though, was that we had no idea what to do with Pettit and, ha- and Halliday. Uh, newcomers are really hard to guess. So I got 50 points, meaning I was off by 50 on Roy Halliday. <laughs> <There, laughs> what would you, you give? You gave Halliday a 35? I said, 30, I said 35, and he got 85. <laughs> you said 50, so you took a haircut, too, and Derek was higher. And then sim- on Pettit, you were actually uh, the one dead on. I was totally wrong about Pettit. So I, I got half my points on Halliday and Pettit alone, basically. So um, that's a good chunk of it. But props to Derek. He beat us badly. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was fun. We'll do that next year. Um, you know, I think uh, next year will also be an interesting ballot for a lot of reasons. we got Larry Walker with his crazy climb. We've got Omar Vizquel still kind of moving up there. We've got Andy Pettit, who maybe maybe there'll be a campaign for Pettit or Sheffield or someone like that, some of their former Yankees. But I want to talk about the big guy, Mariano Rivera, my favorite player growing up. Uh, I don't know about you guys. Uh, Mariano Rivera, is he the player you like the best of the dynasty team, uh, Paul? Wow, that, that's a great question. Uh, if it's not Mariano, it would be Bernie Williams. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little older than you guys, and so I went through those long years of the 80s after growing up with the great Yankees of the 70s, at the end of the 70s. And, you know, Bernie was the guy who was the first guy. I remember when they traded Roberto Kelly to the Reds for Paul O'Neill so that Bernie could play. Now, those were the days when we were really hoping for the Yankees to have these great young players, and we really were sold on Roberto Kelly. So I was like, oh, no, they're going to trust Bernie Williams? He's a nobody. Uh, but he turned out to be great. So so uh, if it wasn't Bernie, it would definitely be Mariano. Class all the way and just so much fun. And he was only pitching, you know, in great big spots in the end of the game, and they play Enter Sandman, and he's the best. So, yeah, it's it's just great. Scott, favorite player on that team? Mine was actually Messina, but I don't talk about Rivera too, because you know we're better at handling baseball teams, not we are better at handling talent and finding the right role for guys. But moving Rivera to the bullpen was an all-time just huge move, and I have a really vivid memory of '95. It was the first year they made the playoffs in a long, long time. Paul, I remember those lean years with you, where '81 they made the World Series, got whooped by the Dodgers, and 14 years later, which spans Don Mattingly's entire career, they weren't back. So I was excited about 95. I was watching it my first year in law school. We're all huddled around the TV. And um, what I remember about 95, though, is Rivera was an interesting and promising player. But they had him um, starting early in his career. You know, like a lot of guys are starters. And he was really not good. 
Um, and he did a couple relief appearances, but he was an interesting guy who wasn't performing great. And I distinctly remember this, but I had to check the game logs to make sure I was right, because you can trick yourself into remembering anything. His first two games in ALDS in 95, game two, game three, he pitched a combined four and two thirds innings, seven strikeouts, no walks. <laughs> and this was a lower strikeout era, four and two thirds innings, two hits, no runs, no walks, seven strikeouts, including, and this is the part I can verify, three swinging strikes by Ken Griffey in his prime on just that 96, 97, at the time rising fastball. And we thought, Oh my God, this guy, this is the guy who was called up and got whooped a couple times in starts. Maybe had a couple decent bullpen outings, but you never know. But when he just dialed it up in the pen, I think we saw right away in those first two playoff games in 95, this guy's something special. And you can sometimes look back and overstate how much you saw it in their first couple, but I'm not claiming any insight. I remember the announcers going bonkers about this when they saw what this kid could do. Hey Scott, do you? I'm sorry. Do you remember? I think there are two. Hold on, Paul. Let me. Let me I, I think there are two different types of Hall of Famers, and I, I, I love thinking about Messina and, and Rivera this way. You've got, you've got the, the really good all around players. Messina, I think, I think is in that group. I, um, I think someone like uh, like Derek Jeter is in that group. Somebody like Larry Walker is in that group. Even somebody like Alex Rodriguez is in that group, where they're really good at a lot of things, but they're not the best ever at anything. And then there's the occasional player who has like a superpower. And I, I love the players with superpowers because it's it's something that you can latch on to and just remember about them forever. Um, you know, when you think about superpowers, you might you think about like, you know, uh, like Barry Bonds' ability to take walks uh, and you know, hit a million home runs. Or, you know, or you think about, um, you know, Nolan Ryan's fastball or something like that. And, and they, these aren't necessarily the best players. Ryan and Rivera certainly aren't. But they just have something like uniquely special about them. And Rivera had two, maybe even three superpowers that that are just like otherworldly to consider. Like there was the there was the cutter, right? The fact they did everything they did with one pitch, and that's been talked to death. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about the cutter any more than I have to uh, for another ten years or so. But like, but like that that was one superpower. His like unflappable consistency was the third superpower. That this is a guy who you know you know was the 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 calm and calm and coolest person in baseball for twenty years. Um, but the third superpower is the postseason, and I think that's the statistic that he'll be like he'll be remem- remembered for. Not the best ERA of all time, but the point seven ERA in one hundred forty one postseason in- innings. And just to think that one player put all that together, it's it's just nuts. It's it's something that will never be done again. And I I couldn't help but think when you know when I saw him being interviewed on MLB Tonight that he was uh, he was in game shape. He could probably get hitters out tomorrow if he if he wanted to. You know, it's funny, EJ. I was thinking the same thing. And he's the first guy to go into the Hall of Fame unanimously, right? And I said to myself, he should be the first guy to go into the Hall of Fame and then come back. They go full Mariano with you on him, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so so Paul, um, I, when we think about Mariano Rivera, like, what is your memory? Like, what one thing sticks out to you as what one game sticks out to you as Rivera? All right, so I was going to ask Scott this question, and because I was going to hope that he was going to confirm my memory, he was talking about memories of Mariano when he was a starting pitcher and he first came up in '95. Do you remember there was a game, I couldn't tell you who it was against, and some guy was up, and I can't tell you who it was, and he hit a little blooper off, I think, to the third base side of the mound, and Mariano 
ran off and he made like a diving somersault catch with the ball in the air and everybody was just amazed that this pitcher did that and it turns out it was Mariano I haven't ever seen it ever since then but I sort of distinctly remember that happening Scott do you have any recollection of that uh, I think that was David Wells who did that somersault no I'm kidding he never did a somersault in his life I don't remember that but you know no that sounds awesome yeah, so so that 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 was my first great memory of Mariano. I don't know if it if it's even true. Uh, I don't know if I have one memory. Uh, I, I think if there is, it's being with my kids in Yankee Stadium, and the time getting late, time after time, and just waiting, hoping the game was close enough so we could be there when they play Enter Sandman, and we watch this great guy come out of the bullpen and 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 end the game time after time. Those are my great Mariano remembrances. Scott, do you have a mo, mo, uh, mo moment? A moment, I guess. <laughs> oh, it was just that one in 95 in the Mariners when he just, you know, I just couldn't believe it that, yes, a lot of guys move to the bullpen and can dial it up. But to see a guy who was really nothing special as a starter, even though he was seen as promising, uh, come in and just blow away Griffey at the top of his game. And that was a Mariners lineup that had in their prime Griffey, A-Rod, um, and a bunch of other guys, uh, Buner, a couple other guys who were that good. And it was just amazing seeing, you know, it was, there rarely are moments where you look back at one game and say, this is the, a star is born moment. But I think it told the Yankees, oh my God, this guy's never starting again. And then the next year, 96, is when he was the setup man pitching 100 innings for Wetland. And they knew they had it right there. All right. So I don't have much more to say about Mariano Rivera, except that he's awesome and, and I've missed him for a long time. Mike Messina, I think, is just more interesting to talk about because he was a more varied pitcher than Rivera. Rivera was the same guy every day from the moment they converted him to the bullpen, and really the moment he learned the cutter until the moment he retired. Scott, you said that Mike Messina was, was your favorite player in, on that team. He retired a while ago now. It's, it's, it's almost more than 10 years ago at this point. Can you explain to the kids who may not, may not remember a lot of Mike Messina, what, what kind of pitcher was he? Yeah, it's interesting. He was definitely a guy who reinvented himself. He came up and threw hard. He was never 100 mile an hour, but he could hit the mid-90s. And his second year is with uh, Baltimore, his first full year. You know, full year, 254 ERA. Um, didn't strike out a lot of guys, though. He pitched to contact, and he was always seen as a really cerebral guy. He graduated Stanford in three and a third years with an econ degree, um, and, you know, then went into um, the Orioles system. So he didn't go for the strikeouts, even when he had the stuff, because that was an era when there was a lot less power, 90, the early 90s. It was pre-steroids before some of the smaller parks. So he was always an, definitely one of the smartest pitchers around. Um, and then he really relied more on this knuckle curve. Um, I guess I don't know if it's similar to Batanzas. Not as hard. He didn't throw it as hard because he's not Batanzas. But he just definitely shifted what he did. And where Sabathia had to reinvent himself, Messina reinvented himself with ever having those three years in the middle where he just stunk and wasn't accepting it. He just, I think, adapted on the fly. And he was amazing to watch. And he was seen as an unfriendly guy because he didn't suffer fools gladly with reporters. But he was just so intense on the mound. He was just glaring the whole time. Um, and, you know, he was just a lot of fun for that reason. Uh, I just really uh, enjoyed him. And he was managed to be respected but underrated at the same time because he... You know, he wasn't really just a compiler. I think he got that rep by lasting 18 years. And at the time, they would still give him crap for never winning 20 games, which he did in his <laughs> last year at 39. Um, but, you know, it's, I think there's a misperception he was a compiler because 
I looked at this. I wrote a podcast. I wrote a blog post for our old blog a couple of years ago. So to make the case, he's not just a lifelong compiler because if you look by best seven years of war, Jay Jaffe's measure, just a peak, he's actually number 65 among starting pitchers ever, which is barely behind guys like Koufax and Drysdale, ahead of Glavin and Nolan Ryan. And the only reason he's as low as 65 is that there are a couple dozen guys with nonsense stats from like the 1800s and early 20th century where they threw 350 pitches. So if you were an okay pitcher for 370 innings, you'll like rack up 15 more or something. So the point is that Messina is actually really high up there as a peak value pitcher. He regularly um, threw well over 200 innings. He threw 200 innings every year from 95 to 03. Uh, in his career, he hit the 240s a couple times. So he was an absolute workhorse, almost never went on the DL. And he was really, really good in years of, you know, you know, eight war, seven war, a bunch of fives and sixes. In his last year, it's funny, at age 39, 5.1 war in his last year. And then he just said, I'm done. But I think the word is, it's a vague memory. He had back problems by the end. So I think it was kind of at the point where it was kind of excruciating for him to be out there. So you got to respect that he went out on top too. But he didn't, usually when they say a guy went out on top, they mean he quit at 34. And I actually don't love that. But, you know, you pitched until 39 and declined to come back at 40. You put in your time and he had a great career. Yeah, I think he probably could have held on if he really wanted to get 300 wins, um, but you know that just wasn't that wasn't something he wanted to do. And, and I I think that I think I think his reputation is hurt a bit by how bad the Yankee defense was in the mid 2000s. So he didn't have great seasons, you know, in 2004, 2005. It was pretty good in 2006, 2007. But he also that that those were some of the worst defensive teams the Yankees have ever had. And, you know, a lot of pitchers looked really bad on those teams. And to the point that, you know, the discussion at the time was this this really stupid notion that, you know, some pitchers just can't handle New York. And maybe Messina is one of those pitchers. It was just BS. The, the problem was, was that, like, the you know, Derek Jeter was playing shortstop and A-Rod was playing third. And, it was, and Jason Giambi was playing first. And Bernie Williams was playing center field. Like, it was just – these were just bad teams that, you know, that, that – uh, or bad defenses that were going to allow a lot of runs. And so he put up, you know, decent fips that entire time, but some of his his ERAs just looked bad because of that. Till he finished out his career with, like you said, that great season. Paul, do you have a Messina memory that you 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 fondly remember the most? Uh, can I have two of them? Yes. Ah, uh, thank you. Or three um, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> One is uh, him coming out of the bullpen in the playoffs. I think that's the Jeter flip game. Uh, and, and spurring the Yankees on and holding the A's down. He started that game. Yes, absolutely. And the other was the almost perfect game up in Boston. Oh, oh did God. My... He had two almost perfect games, right? Didn't he have two games with one out left? Uh, well, I know the one. And Carl Everett uh, hit that yeah. bloop single to left and my heart broke. I was just miserable. And uh, th- those were my two favorite. And, and the fact that he won that 20th game on the last day of, uh, in his last start. That was awesome. Scott, do you have a memory? I remember that game well because it was, yeah, it was Carl Everett who got the double or whatever off and that broke it up and the perfect game. And he, I got to say, he had this really expressive look on his face. That he was smirking and just looking down and just like looked like he wanted to just punch something or somebody or whatever. <laughs> and I kind of like when you guys show motion. It wasn't inappropriate like he's having a fit. It wasn't like, who was it? Who was the guy? Who was the reliever who last year was punching himself in the head a bunch of times? Ken Giles, I think. And as he was walking to the bullpen, that's like getting the man some help. But you got to respect that Messina showed it. And, you know, but I just remember he was so intense all the time and just 
you know, really uh, just, you know, showed the emotion. By the way, he also was known as a big crossword puzzle fan. So there was a joke article I remember from way back that it was at the end of his career. It was a headline. It wasn't in The Onion. It was some place that isn't generally funny. But the headline was, Mike Messina disappointed that crossword answer for washed up pitcher is Messina. And it was just, <laughs> it was just really funny because he was having a garbage year in 07 at age 38. And just the image of a guy who looks pissed off when he's pissed off and doesn't hide it, looking at the crossword and saying, looking up and saying, wait a minute. So I thought it was great. Yeah, he had a great annoyed look on the mound. I, I, if I have a memory, it's 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 not the specific memories that Paul mentioned were were going to be the two that are, that are in my head. But I'll just add that the shape of his knuckle curve was unique, and I just it, you could you could tell the pitch so clearly that this is a Mike Messina pitch, um, and and it just it was just badass because he wasn't a strikeout pitcher. But you see that curveball and you go like this guy should strike out you know thirteen batters per nine, and he never did. He was a seven uh, strikeouts per nine guy. Throughout his career, you know, in the middle of a pretty high strikeout, incredibly high off- offensive era, and um, uh, it was just always fun to watch him pitch. I, I agree with you. I think he always got this idea, this reputation as, be- as being like a-, a scholar pitcher. When in reality, he you know he wasn't he wasn't Greg Maddox out there. He had that crazy knuckle curve. He made some adjustments throughout throughout his career, especially kind of late in his career when he he kind of uh, you know figured out how to be really good again. But like he wasn't like he, he wasn't this like trickster out there. He he had really great control and a couple of good pitches and went out there and just was was great for for twenty years. You know, um, one, of let's, the, one of the things just uh, I found a quote that I vaguely remembered him saying something like this uh, a couple of years ago, where they asked him about you know he got some question like why didn't you stay to get three hundred wins, and he said and I just you know like that he's he strikes me as honest you know and he got a rep for being aloof and. I think Michael Kay hated him because there was one day he wasn't up for talking and Kay really pressed him to do an interview and Messina gave one word answers and Kay had this rant about how he's paid so much money and he should talk and whatever and whatever. You know, someday I want to hit up Michael Kay after he ate some bad sushi and yell at him through the bathroom door about how he really should talk to me because he gets paid a lot. But the quote from Messina is, they asked him about 300 wins and quote, I wanted to go out on my own terms. I don't want to go out with somebody telling me it's time to go. I'm trying to find a job. I can't find a job. I never wanted to bounce around from one team to another to keep playing at 41, 42, trying to scratch out eight wins this year and 10 wins the next year. I've never wanted to do it that way. All right. So I just want to jump in and give a plug to Pinstripe Alley. They wrote an article. It looks like it was on March 12, 2013, and it's called Generational GIFs, Mariano Rivera's Diving Catch in 96. And they actually show a, a gif of, uh, of Mariano making that diving catch where he did the somersault. It happened against the Oakland A's in the start of Dwight Gooden immediately after his no-hitter. So if you, if you type that into your browser, you'll see that diving catch that Mariano made early in his career. All right. So uh, you know, before we move on, let's just preview. I'm just going to really quickly preview myself the, uh, the next, next year's Hall of Fame ballot. Some interesting stuff here. So Derek Jeter will be on the ballot for the first time. And a lot of other former, like, part-time Yankees will be on the ballot. So you got Bobby Abreu, Jason Giambi, Eric Chavez, uh, Alfonso Soriano, and Raul Abanez all on the ballot. And so it uh, should be an exciting year for that. But we're going to move on talk about the next year's Yankees, who have now signed our third member of the Colorado Rockies, Adam Adovino. Scott, who is Adam Adovino, and is he good? Adam Adovino is the Western Dellen Batances, uh, almost eerily so. Insane strikeout rate, rates, troubling walk rates that 
aren't just he, like Chapman, will walk a guy every now and then and ended up with a 3.8 walks per nine. When I say control, that's iffy. I mean, every now and then he'll come in and throw a wild pitch and hit two guys in the face. Uh, and then they steal off him because also like Batances, he can't hold runners. That's it. <laughs> He's actually an amazing pitcher because, again, like Batances, nobody can hit this guy. I mean, the swinging strike rate is through the roof. He struck out 13 per nine last year, and uh, the previous years he strikes out, you know, on average 11 and change per nine. So he's basically as close to almost as unhittable as Betances um, and about as wild. But last year it was more effectively wild than the previous year when he was off the charts uh, out of control. So he's very much a Yankees reliever in that way, um, but he is that good. And I think there's reason to think he can stay that good for a couple of years. If you had a choice, would you take him or David Robertson? Him. Uh, Paul, is the Yankee bullpen better, worse, or about the same as last year? Wow, that's a great question. I'm going to say better. Um, and, and I really like the signing. I know you weren't high on the Britain signing. I liked it. And uh, I like the Adovino signing. And, and I like the fact that the Yankees are investing big-time money in, these, in their bullpen because I think the starting rotation is going to need some bailing out oftentimes. And so now they have a lot of high-leverage pitchers who are going to be able to do a great job for them. All right, and I'm sorry, we got a little bit of sound in the background, um, but uh, we're going to move on and talk really, really quickly about the Sunny Gray trade. So, Scott, in one sentence, what is, how do you feel about the Sunny Gray trade? As a wise woman once sang, my heart will go on. Paul? I, I just muted. That, that sound is a train going behind my house. It's a loud train. Um, is yeah, that a metaphor the- for Sunny Gray? Is that your contribution? Yeah, yeah, that that was Sonny Gray. Actually, he was leaving, <laughs> and, and and the other guy, Shed Long, was on the train right with him. Going, Sonny Gray was tied to the roof of the train. Actually, <laughs> you That's know, I shipped him out. We we were excited when he became a Yankee, and I had high hopes for him. And uh, I'm disappointed. I wish him only the best. I'll say uh, the draft pick is really nice, but why the heck did they extend him? <laughs> um, I don't get it. But Sonny Gray is gone. Good riddance. Uh, is the 2019 Yankee roster set now, Scott? I think it is. I'm still holding out the 10% hope. I now place it as that they're going to swoop in because Machado or Harper goes way under market. But I think they're basically done. I don't see where they think they have a hole. I think they... You know, it's not that they have a hole. It's just that they have the money and they could use another guy. I think there's a decent chance they find another guy. I haven't looked at the names out there, but somebody who could sort of be a six starter slash long man who will be underwhelming to us. So I think they could sign someone like that. Um, you know, maybe Adam Warren to stretch him out or the guys like Nate Carnes, just underwhelming names that'll be sort of long man or up and down or whatever because I'm still a little wary of who their sixth starter is and I like some of the kids but if you're aspiring to be a 100 win team you have to just assure a zero percent chance as possible of putting in someone who gets clobbered every five days so what they've done in assuring they have depth in the outfield in the infield and in the bullpen they haven't quite done that with the rotation yet and they have guys like every team does in the rotation with either an injury history or, you know, who could be hit and miss. So I, I suspect they might go for some depth there unless they're really confident in some of the young guys like Loisica or Herman or whomever. All right, Paul, um, uh, Scott, you want to say one more thing regarding Adovino? 
Yeah, so I don't know how much this made, you know, national news, but it's a big news in the Rockies where he was very much an early adopter of a lot of the tech that they're looking at. This from last year where he had a garbage 2017 and he just lost the plate. Now it was his first full year back from Tommy John, so maybe that's part of it, but he rented out a warehouse in Harlem that's across the street from a Chuck E. Cheese, and I love that. And this <laughs> is a quote from the Fangraphs article. Quote, he's looked at TrackMan data for years. He already had a Rhapsodo camera and flight analytics to measure his spin. He bought an Edutronic SC2 high-speed camera, which captures 3350 frames per second for $16,000. Quote, sometimes what your brain's telling you is happening is not really happening. Without the cameras, it's trial and error. Could have taken years. With the cameras, it was like four days and I was on track. Um, and then they elaborate. Um, what Automino said was key is improve command. He'd make a pitch, evaluate his grip, and release on video, make a slight adjustment. Quote, a cue I learned is what to do with my pointer finger. I would never have thought of it without seeing it on the camera. And then he started elaborating about spin and how not all spins the same. It works with this pitch, but not that one. I mean, this guy, he's kind of Messina-like, but it's funny. Messina was like a generation too early. I think if Messina were here now, he would have been the sort of early adopter looking at data and stuff. But, you know, Adovino's very much that guy. Um, and it's just really interesting. He's, he'd be a good fit. And this is also why I think he's a really good bet at age 33 to be good for a couple more years. I mean, he reinvented himself right away. Um, even though he's under contract two more years when he had a rough go of it and did it in this really interesting way with cameras and spin rate and data and just throw a pitch, look at video, look at data and catch things that are wrong. That was just so cool, I thought. All right, uh, Paul, last question. Uh, so the Yankees have done a lot this offseason. They've brought in, by my count, DJ LeMayhu, Adam Adovino. They re-signed CeCe Sabathia. They traded for James Paxton. Uh, they uh, they brought in, I'm trying to think, probably uh, Troy Tulowitzki, probably another player or two that I'm forgetting. Uh, re-signed uh, Brett Gardner. Oh, re-signed Brett Gardner, re-signed uh, Zach Britton. They've spent a lot of money in the short term. They've brought up their payroll to about $216 million. Are you happy with the offseason? You know, um, that's been something I've been debating in my head for a long time. But ultimately, I like the move they, moves they've made. But if you're going to say that, do, do I think this was a great offseason when they haven't signed either Manny Machado or Bryce Harper, two 26-year-old guys younger than Aaron Judge, who are superstars? No, I'm, I'm going to be disappointed if either or both of those guys aren't wearing pinstripes on opening day. Scott? Yeah, I. on the one hand, I 100% agree. I think there are about 22 teams in baseball, I'm making this number up, that could afford those guys. And there's no excuse for not signing them for of those 22, let's say 15. I mean, sure, if you're a team that's a 60-win team next year, a terrible team, let's call you the Marlins or something. <laughs> there's not a lot of point in adding a big free agent, but any team that's about 80 wins or more, and isn't stacked at short or third should really sign Machado. So maybe not the Dodgers or Rockies, but everybody else. On the other hand, the Yankees, so all teams are sort of being too cheap, except maybe the Phillies. That said, um, the Yankees are being less cheap than most other teams. I mean, I'm also a fan of the Rockies, which I'll spare you the sadness of that, but they've really cheaped out like most teams have. Um, they could use an outfielder and aren't signing Pollock. And, you know, they could have used a reliever and passed on Adovino for $9 million a year. He would have come back. So I think, yes, it's disappointing and infuriating the Yankees didn't sign Machado and probably aren't going to. But it is a bit of first-world problems because we have it better than 90% of teams out there. 
Yeah, I'm kind of with you guys. I, mean, I, I'm, I, I think the Yankees have improved their team. I think that they're in a pretty good position going into next year. But yeah, I, I think that they missed an opportunity here. And although they spent money in the short term, the payroll is up to, I'm going to say, respectable levels. But, you know, high enough that I'm not going to complain at the moment that in this coming season, the Yankees aren't spending a lot of money. But in the long term, they didn't. In the long term, they cheaped out. And, um, you know, they missed an opportunity probably to sign one of the best players they're going to have an opportunity to sign anytime soon. And I will reserve. I will reserve judgment until the Machado and Harper sign. If they sign for two hundred seventy-five million dollars, like has been reported as an offer, the best offer out to them at the moment, I will be very angry. If they sign for I don't know four hundred million dollars, I'll be a little less angry. Um, we will see. With that, thank oh, you one for more thing. joining. Just Go a quick for it, update. Scott. So I got my clock cleaned and got whooped in the uh, Hall of Fame betting. But our other prop bet that EJ, you, Derek, and I uh, have is a pick. Uh, we drafted 10 off-season Yankees moves, like who they'll trade, sign, whatever. So that one, I'm not getting my clock clean. I just took the lead with three points because I had sign out of Eno, trade Gray, sign Hap. So I'm winning three to one to zero. So uh, hopefully they, you know, sign Machado and Harper, and then I'll get five points. I think I'm zero on that too, so. You are uh, zero on that. Yeah, I wasn't going to rub <laughs> it in, but, you know, unless they, unless they – uh, get Scooter, Jeanette, Starlin Castro, or Dallas Keuchel, or DeGrom, Bumgarner, or Rendon. You will remain at zero, my friend. Yeah, pretty sure I'm out of that one. All right, you guys, thank you. This has been a great episode. This has been your, your Bronx Beat Podcast. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.